Welcome to the Faculty Podcast brought to you by Reformed Theological Seminary in Washington, D.C., part of a 50-plus year endeavor to train pastors and other church leaders in the ministry of the gospel in the United States and around the world. My name is Scott Redd. I teach Old Testament here, and I'm the president of this campus. I'm joined by Dr. Tommy Keene, professor of New Testament and our academic dean, and Professor Paul Jean, professor of New Testament and also senior pastor here at New City Presbyterian Church in the D.C. area. And we've got a special treat today. We're taking a break out of our Ten Commandments series to talk to some of our colleagues on far-flung RTS campuses. I'm here with Dr. Will Ross and Dr. Greg Lanier. Welcome, brothers. Thanks for having us. Uh, it's, we're going to talk about some of the work that you guys have been doing jointly. Um, Dr. Will Ross is Assistant Professor of Old Testament at RTS in Charlotte. And Dr. Greg Lanier is an Associate Professor of New Testament at RTS in Orlando. But they've joined their superpowers together to do a bunch of work in quite appropriate uh, area of study, and that is the study of the Septuagint, that is Greek translations of the Old Testament. So we're going to talk about that. Before we do, I want to start off, uh, Dr. Lanier, Greg, can you tell us how did you get to where you are? How did you get to this area of studying the Old Testament in Greek, Second Temple, Jewish Messianic texts? You just published recently Corpus Christologica, Texts and Translations for the Study of Jewish Messianism and Early Christology. How did you go from whatever you were doing before to doing this? Can you just kind of walk us along how you discern that call? Yeah, so it's, it's, a, it's a long story. I'll give you the short version. Um, I, after undergrad, went into business and worked in various jobs, kind of caught the reform bug along the way, ended up in Charlotte, where my wife and I first planted our roots and had our first kid and so forth. And I uh, got to know Mike Kruger while I was there as a churchman. Uh, he was one of my pastors. Long story short, uh, discerned a call to go into ministry and went to RTS Charlotte. And about a year into interning for Mike, I discerned a further calling to go and pursue PhD studies. And incidentally, and non, non-trivially along the way, I had actually had a course with Tommy Keene up in D.C. And that was, uh, he was, you know, Tommy, you were still mainly pastoring at that point, and uh, had gotten whiff of uh, the Greek Old Testament, mainly from the angle of the use of the Old Testament in the New, went off to Cambridge, and ended up not doing the topic I was originally going to do, and stumbled upon a different topic that was fundamentally an intersection of early high Christology, gospel studies, uh, particularly Luke, and Luke's use of the Old Testament, and really drilled it down on Greek Old Testament in that phase of my life. Uh, but because of the topic I was dealing with, namely early high Christology, that, that gets you into the world of messianic uh, views and ideology, Dead Sea Scrolls, all that kind of stuff. And so much of that I wasn't really all that aware, uh, aware of when I, when I was in seminary, and so I discovered a lot of it uh, while I was doing my doctoral work and really uh, became quite interested in it. And then along the way, that's when Will and I met and started uh, scheming to take over the world. So that was kind of the, the short version, and really a lot of what I do now stems from that original project. Not, not, I'm not just doing like Luke Christology all the time, but the topics of Gospels, Christology, use the Old Testament, the New, Septuagint, and then text criticism actually is a component of that as well. That's the kind of stuff that I mainly spend my time on. So it all kind of started there. But 
So what I'm hearing is that Tommy Keen really was a paradigm shift for you. And well, well, we were talking about it before, but I mean, he he, he really did. Uh, and it was one of the advanced courses uh, as part of the curriculum. And it was my first time where a lot of that stuff came together. And he was he was talking about in particular the textual complexity of the both the Hebrew Bible and the Greek Old Testament. And I had never really heard much about that. And so it was really intriguing to me. Uh, I think he handled it well. And it wasn't, you know, that can be really scary for people, but I think it, it, he handled it well. And that really kind of, it, it was something that, that caught my interest from that point on. So That's excellent. And Will Ross, uh, give us a little bit of a rundown. How did you get to where you are? You, you, you went to Grove City College for your undergrad. You were at Westminster for your MDiv. And then right. you ended up going to Cambridge for your PhD what kind of brought you along this pathway to studying uh, the Old Testament and Greek? Yeah, would not have uh, guessed that that would be sort of my main thing all that long ago, but I came out of Grove City pretty confident the Lord was calling me into some kind of ministry that would involve teaching, at least that's what I had hoped. So I arrived at Westminster with that kind of on the back burner and approached my coursework in a way that sort of prioritized extra reading and sort of exploring different areas of biblical scholarship and languages in particular. I kind of realized I I enjoyed the biblical languages pretty early on. And so I was able, because of Westminster's degree programs, I was able to sort of audit or take some of the THM PhD level courses And it was in the process of doing that, that I discovered that the Septuagint was a thing. I had become interested. Now you know it's not a thing. Now now I know it's not (laughs) a thing. On the other side of the Dunning-Kruger effect, right? Um, (laughs) So I had become interested in Hebrew and Old Testament studies, uh, but I had also started TAing for Greg Beal. And I I was a little torn because I was starting to enjoy Greek more and more. And now it's a pleasure to say that Dr. Beal and I are colleagues. He's now that he's at uh, RTS Dallas. Yeah, that's right. So that's crazy. But um, anyway, I found out about the Septuagint through um, one of these uh, upper level courses and ended up doing an independent study in it, did lots of reading, got very interested in it. It's kind of one of my parallel interests is um, ling- linguistics. And so I kind of fell into the black hole of lexicography and uh, particularly Greek and Septuagint lexicography. So that's how I wound up at Cambridge. And that's how I I met Greg. We were both at Cambridge. I guess we overlapped for two years, although we only really overlapped for one year because I was away for a year. But anyway, we met there and um, I did uh, my dissertation on Septuagint lexicography. And um, that's kind of what I do still. So you guys were working together on, I mean, you're, you're working individually on your own academic studies, but your kind of breakthrough together was this reader's edition of the Septuagint. And now you've got coming out, right, uh, this book with Crossway, the Septuagint, what it is and why it matters. So let me, let me transition. We're going to vocab book together as well. Oh, the book by book guide? Yeah. The Septuagint. Yeah, right. Okay. So as you, as our, Audiences listening, they've probably heard the phrase thrown around. A lot of our audience are RTS students. They've heard about the Septuagint. Can you, first of all, solve the age-old problem of how it's pronounced? Is it Septuagint or Septuagint? And then secondly, because we don't want to get hung up on that, uh, tell us what is, what is the, uh, the predefined LXX? 
I'm going to let Will answer the at least the, the pronunciation. Um, <clears throat> well, there is a there's a wide and broad tradition of pronunciations. I started saying Septuagint. Most Americans say Septuagint. The Canadians tend to say Septuagint, and the Brits tend to say Septuagint. And no one knows who's right, but um, so you can choose. You can choose. I, I think I'm inconsistent myself. Yeah, uh, we so. know the Canadians aren't right. I mean, right? Yeah, that's true. That's no, true. They can't we can narrow right. it down. Um, so anyway, you could just say LXX. It makes it easier. Except right. we don't ever do that. Yeah. Please. Yeah. Can you say old? How about old Greek? <laughs> uh, so what is it? It is really not a unified thing, but in broad strokes, what people tend to be talking about is. Greek translations of the Hebrew Bible, plus a bunch of other Jewish Greek literature that emerged somewhere between the third century BC and the first or second century AD, depending on who you're talking to. And even the inclusion of the other writings is, is part of the question as to how, how right. broadly do you define the term? But. Right. Yeah, so you, you use, you, you know, the, the joke, I guess, Greg, that, uh, you know, both of you learned that the Septuagint was a thing and then that it was not a thing. So in what sense is it not a thing? Will can correct me, but uh, as I've learned from Will, if you want to conceptualize it as a, a book that you could buy, hypothetically, or, or something that was a coherent entity between two covers that somebody in the first century could access that was uniform, published at the largely the same time by some sort of publication committee using the same translation philosophy like an ESV or NIV, which I think is a very common misconception and certainly was the one that I had. If that's your conception, then that would be false. It is not that kind of thing. Uh, Will, what would be a, uh, a, a better way to describe it in, in reality? Uh, no, I think that's, that's fair. The reason it's worth saying the Septuagint doesn't exist. I mean, I, I'm I borrowing this whole kind of um, the phrase Septuagint doesn't exist from Pete Williams, who is my supervisor temporarily in Cambridge. And uh, he says it kind of provocatively because uh, he likes to say provocative things and, and get in debate with people. He'll even say things like the we shouldn't use the term Bible for various reasons. So you can get him on and ask him about that. But the point is that it isn't. Yeah, it's not a unified monolithic thing. And uh Pete has shown in, in uh, an essay, he wrote how the word Septuagint was historically, even through the early modern period, used as a reference, a shorthand reference to the 70 translators and used with plural verbs, right? So like the 70 attest such and such a reading as if- As a group of people, right? not a document. Yes. Yeah, you want to tell the story of why 70? Right. So there's a- there is a no, no he does not but he will <laughs> <laughs> and then tell us whether or not it's a true story <clears throat> so there's a there's an ancient jewish account in something called the letter of aristeas uh, that tells the story of how ptolemy ii wanted the jewish law in his personal royal library and so he commissioned uh the best scribes from jerusalem to come on down bring their best scroll and translate it into Greek. They did that. There's lots of fanfare. There's a feast. They all go off into their separate chambers and work on it, come out with the same exact wording, word for word. 
And so it's a miracle and no one can change it forever and so on and so forth. It's got the same kind of status as the Hebrew texts uh, and so on and so forth. Okay, so this shows up in Philo and Josephus to some extent as well. So that's the basic, the basic story. And it was, I mean, more or less the origin story, uh, depending on who you're looking at for most of history up until at least the early modern period when, when that came into question. And modern scholarship, some, some scholars look at that and see some level of credibility, like maybe, maybe there was royal sponsorship of some kind. Others dismiss it out of hand and, and account for the original translation efforts some, some other way. And then basically from there, the number 70 for the translators became almost uh, reified as the document basically over time. And that's hence the Roman numbers. LXX and it went, and it went from just the Pentateuch to the entire thing. So there's a bunch of moving parts, but, um, and then the abbreviation for 70 is LXX. So that's right. And so one of the things you end up with, which makes just a whole mess of the discipline is there's not a consistent set of terminology in contemporary Septuagint scholarship. You have people using the word Septuagint for some, for some things you have other people using old Greek uh, or, or the abbreviation OG, which is usually shorthand for the theoretical original translation as represented in a critical edition like the Göttingen editions. Some people use OG slash LXX to refer to the old Greek translation of the Pentateuch and the rest. Some people use Septuagint only to refer to the Pentateuch in Greek it's just a mess. So, so we actually have the first chapter of the Crossway book is dedicated to that, just that issue. Just that whole question. Like, what are we going to call this thing? And so we punt and we don't call it the Septuagint after the first chapter. <laughs> That's what the really? kids want. They want argument about what to call it. Yeah. Yeah. It's great. It's great. And, you know, I've already gotten pushback on Twitter over it, so it must have worked. That's also Twitter. but. <laughs> So tell me, what's the importance for, for a modern day Bible scholar or just a person who's interested in scripture who says, well, we all know it was written in Hebrew anyway. Why are we reading these translations? What's, what's the value of studying the Septuagint and, be able to, and being familiar with it? Well, do you want to start with uh, the, from the Old Testament perspective and I can give a New Testament perspective? Sure. Um, it, it, is, it is great. It's, it's one of those areas that kind of splits the difference between the old and the new. Yep. Test the scholarly fields that that's really interesting. Yeah, I mean, it is a broad area for that reason. Um, so it really does touch on a lot of different things. And I think it's easier to see how much it does touch on the more you get familiar with it. So I think at a very broad level, just reading an introductory book like this, your average, you know, seminary students or lay leader in the church or pastor will begin to realize, wow, this really, it kind of bridges the Testaments in a lot of ways, um, historically, uh, in terms of religious communities, and also in terms of the textual relevance, right? So one of the main ways, I think, for Old Testament studies that Septuagint is important is because it gives you a, a sense for the textual environment of the Second Temple period in particular. Uh, that's uh, the late Second Temple Judaism is, is where the Septuagint originated. And understanding how and where and among whom it was originally translated, and then 
the ways in which it was revised and kind of the, the branches started to multiply and spread out almost immediately and the ways in which the revisions were made helps you kind of get a sense for the complexity of the textual situation overall. And to a large extent, it can help sort of ratchet down the level of uh, concern that people have with that, not because there's no uh, good response to the textual situation and the diversity and the plurality, but because it's pervasive and there's lots of relevant information and ways of dealing with it. Um, you know, one of the reasons why a layperson should care, even just on top of that, is uh, depending on the translation you're using, you see it in the footnotes, at least in the ESV and NIV, as early as chapter four of Genesis and chapter two in the CSB. And so they're going to see it in their footnotes. And so any pastor, any concerned layperson, you want to know what the footnotes mean. And if it just says the Septuagint, that's a bit scary. Um, yeah. And so you want to be able to to be equipped to explain, like if, I, if I'm training someone or as a pastor, practicing pastor, I want my, my congregants to not kind of freak out when they see something like that, because those kinds of things, or like whenever you see something before a, a major textual variant, like the, the endings of Mark, whenever people bump into the earliest manuscripts don't have X, or they see the stuff in the footnotes, that can go in a bad direction for people from uh, their, their, trust, their trust in scripture. Like, oh, I've heard these popular people on TV or what have you, uh, throw stones at the Bible that we can't trust. It's been changed. We don't, we don't know what it says and that kind of thing. And so the Septuagint is a part of that broader conversation as to mm -hmm. how do we get the Bible? How can we trust the Bible? And I think it's probably insofar as I think we've done a pretty good job in a reformed evangelical mode of handling canon and text on the New Testament side of the coin uh, with your Chuck Hills and your Krugers, not to just toot RTS horns, but I think they've been very, very effective in that realm. The same is probably not true on the Old Testament side of the coin. It's also a lot more complicated on the Old Testament side of the coin. And uh, that needs to be handled well and judiciously. And it is complicated, like Will said. And it doesn't, it doesn't mean that we need to run away from that. It means that we need to actually know what we're talking about. And so uh, as uh, esoteric as Septuagint studies can be, at least what I think motivates Will and me, in part at least, is to be a voice uh, to help folks navigate through it. On the New Testament side of the coin, I mean, you know, one of the biggest ways in which you see the imprint of the Greek Old Testament is in both the language of the New Testament, although with caveats, as well as uh, the direct interaction with the Old Testament in terms of language. It's not like it's a special Septuagintal Greek, but certain words do have uh, or, or, or sort of phrases have the imprint of their use in the Greek Old Testament very clearly uh, in the way the New Testament uses the term. This could be anything from the sort of Hilasterion, the mercy seat uh, in the KJV. In Romans, you have covenant terminology, glory terminology, those kinds of things. You, in some respects, I'll talk about this with like Scott Swain here a bit at RTS. And, you know, he told me the other day that he basically treats the Greek Old Testament as his number one go-to lexicon now. When he's trying to figure out a word in the Greek New Testament, and you know, he'll look up, look it up properly in the lexicons, but a lot of times he'll just sort of, you know, tick through the places it shows on the Greek Old Testament to get a feel for what it means because it was that important for the theological vocabulary. Although you don't want to overstate it, but obviously, many, many times—not not all the time—it's not 100%, but many times when the, when Paul, when Matthew, uh, whomever, when you know, author of Hebrews, Luke, etc., when they're quoting from Genesis, Deuteronomy, Isaiah, many times they are demonstrably engaging with some Greek version of it. 
Uh, and the way you often know that is if it deviates from the Hebrew tradition that we can reconstruct. And so that has immense implications that, you know, be happy to go into more, but to, to sort of handle that question of what is a New Testament author doing when he's quoting Isaiah 42, like Matthew does, for instance, you really need to study it against the context of its Greek form. You can also do it against its Hebrew slash English form that you would have in your Bible, but to do it well, you need to have a broader range of data because that's probably what Matthew was using, some version that was circulating in Greek, at least in certain cases. So uh, that's the other big area where this, uh, this collection of translations is really significant. I think that's one of the things I loved about seeing that reader's edition come out is that it gives those with, with Greek, you know, a, a foothold to, to just start reading. Um, I'd love to hear, like, what was the design for you guys? What was the kind of purpose and, and idea that generated that, uh, you know, plug your book. I mean, I think it's, I think it's a wonderful resource. I plug it all the time, but uh, why don't you give it, give it a go? Yeah, I can, I can start, Will, and you can add in. We were both, I think I was my second year, Will was in his first year, or I was near the, I can't remember exactly when it was, but we had both just come back from the Bible conferences, and this was when the BHS, the Hebrew, the new Reader's Edition came out, and it sold out like in three days or something like that. And I remember texting him, uh, and so I get all the credit, but all, he had had the idea, he claims, but we can't prove it, but I did text him. Um, and I said, hey, is anyone, because he's more in the know than I am, I said, is anyone working on a reader's edition of the Greek? Uh, because that would be brilliant. And he said, nobody would touch it. Something along these lines. It's way too complicated. I haven't heard anyone who's doing it. No but one's that stupid to try. I think he actually said that no one's that stupid to try. And I said, well, we are. And uh, through actually, it was through his connections with Beale that he had mentioned earlier, we got connected with Hendrickson as the right partner for this. And uh, they'd been wanting to do it for years. Uh, so had the Bible Society, the German Bible Society, but nobody was stupid enough to do it. And so we said, all right, uh, sure. Well, why, don't, why not us? Here we are. Send us. And four and a half-ish years later, we were done. And so it was an immense project with, I don't know how much down in the weeds you want to go, but from a technical perspective, essentially what we were doing is uh, we sort of divvied up the chapters and uh, with, you know, we licensed the text from GBS, the Bible Society, and uh, sort of divvied it up 50-50. We would go through using some uh, macros and some other programmatic things to help us with, but basically we were glossing. Uh, we had to compute, okay, which words to gloss, i.e. which words would you not, would you not have learned? In introductory Greek, so we would put those footnotes on the page to make it more uh, easy to read. That's the essence of a reader's edition. And so we would just—I mean, I basically—I think Will pretty much did the same thing. I would pretty much just do a chapter a night, and I think you were mainly working in the morning, using shared docs and all that kind of stuff. And we just chipped away at it. Then we would trade and uh, grade each other's work. And what was it? Uh, One thousand some odd chapters later, because we included the double text, so that would be certain books of the Old Testament have multiple versions that you can distinguish. And then we also include the Apocrypha. So it ends up being longer than the Old and New Testament combined uh, approximately in terms of when you add the, all that in. So it was a massive undertaking. And uh, yeah, it started, started the process of the uh, proofing with Hendrickson and they did a lot of heavy lifting and we had even more like issues to, to cross even post the word doc phase. And then uh, lo and behold, we had 3,300 pages. Um, and that was the final page count in two volumes. So that came out in 2018 and it was, it ended up actually going pretty well uh, for, for such a massive project. I think we did 120,000 footnotes. Yep. Um, yep. 
It's longer than some of Beale's work. I know, which is hard to do. Yeah, that's true. Although, you know, we didn't write the Septuagint, so there's a bit. Oh, right, right. Yeah. So you're going through and you're translating. How, how are you doing it? Are you basically reading it entirely in Greek and translating per section what the best gloss would be? Yes. Okay. Yeah. And so then, you must get a real feel then having kind of read with a mind for with the translator's eye. Yeah. You know, you're, you're not reading. You're reading with the translator's eye. What's that like with you when you're reading a text that does have such a complicated and somewhat shrouded in mystery translation history? I mean, you're you're seeing how all the different terms are being translated. Did you get a feel for the diversity of the author of, of the of the translators there? I mean, do you get a feel for that? in the midst of this does do some texts feel like really wildly different from the rest <laughs> i'm just interested yeah. yeah yeah it's a good question i mean we i think we each had probably different working styles in producing our actual drafts but one of the benefits i mean you could look at this either way it's a benefit or a huge drag but we both read through the septuagint you know i guess twice effectively um and most of that was you know, focused on the rare vocabulary because that's all the stuff in the footnotes is all the difficult stuff, all the stuff that doesn't occur in the New Testament or is below a hundred uh, times frequency in the Septuagint. So, I mean, my Greek vocabulary went through the roof over those four years because you're just seeing all these rare words and and you're reading the Greek texts consistently. So the first step for all of our phases was to basically flag words. We would highlight them yellow using Bible works, actually. May it rest in peace. May it rest in peace. Yeah. Oh, amen. And so we would, we would have these PDFs of uh, the text with the with the words in yellow that we had to footnote. And normally, I don't know, Greg, do you, it's like probably, I mean, two, three words of verse on average, at least in some Depends of Depends on the book you're in, yeah. Right. If it's second, so, it's second third, fourth Maccabees, it was... Every word but Kai, basically. Yeah, yeah, Kai, exactly. <laughs> so, so I mean, as we went along, yeah, you certainly, you certainly gain in confidence yourself. But it was interesting for me. I'm sure Greg can attest to this too. Some some books are objectively more difficult, more ornate language, or whatever word you would want to use right. there. And we uh, quantified that for a paper we did at ETS in terms of sort of if you if you use vocabulary difficulty participle and infinitive density and that kind of thing as a metric for difficulty of the Greek, there was a clear ranking with sort of first chronicles as the easiest followed by the Pentateuch and then wisdom, fourth Maccabees and some others like it as, as hands down the hardest. And I tell my students who are struggling with like Mark one, uh, I'm like, just, just take my Septuagint class at the very end of the semester, we're going to read fourth Maccabees and you will repent in dust and ashes. Cause you will feel like, you know, nothing. And I, I mean, I still feel that way. Uh, yeah. like I do not know what the heck is going on here. This is just like astounding how complicated it is. So there is a massive difference. You think is that a function of it being so late and not having a synoptic text like, a like Chronicles does or something or what? Yeah. It, I mean, it's a matter of register, I think, because you have not only a greater variety of vocabulary involved, so you, your lexical stock goes up dramatically, uh, but you also have more complex, usually subordinated Greek syntax that becomes yeah. longer and longer sentences uh, with you know just very ornate and complicated interlocking clauses. And I remember very vividly 
doing um, Esther and we had, you know, the alpha text of Esther, which has, you know, a couple of uh, additional uh, letters that are exchanged between Xerxes and somebody, I forget. And the Greek of the text of Esther, that's a translation, reads pretty normally, like it's, it's sort of middle of the road Greek. But when you bump into those alpha text sections, especially the letters, the register becomes a lot more formal uh, and sort of elevated. And so oh. the Greek just gets so much more difficult. It's like hitting a brick wall. So it's yeah. really, you can, you can't feel that a lot of time. Yeah. I mean, it's like, it's like, you know, if you go from uh, Romans to Hebrews, you feel it, you know, it's a, it, there's right. a pretty big difference. Um, so, uh, but that was one of the, one nice, uh, I think this is similar to Tommy's or a point that he sort of introduced um, now that we have it. And I use it in my uh, Septuagint readings class. I have my students at RTS read roughly 50 ish chapters, something like that. And, and we start with Genesis. We work our way through and uh, it, it pushes them because they're not used to reading that much. They're used to in a Greek readings class. We're going to just chip away at, you know, Galatians three for the semester, something like that. So they're still very used to doing, Kind of atomistic approach and i'm just like no nah, i'm not interested in that we're not gonna i'm not gonna have you parse i don't really care um you can figure out how to parse it i want you to read all of genesis 1 through 15 and tell me how it strikes you and one of the things that's been kind of fun with that when they get to the psalms for instance and i had a student who uh he struggled mightily with this course because his greek just wasn't all that solid by the end of the semester it really was but one of my favorite moments was i think we were doing psalm 2 and we always at the beginning of class read it out loud. And for some reason it hit him because he saw Christos in Psalm two. And he was like, crap, that's, that's Christ. And I was like, yeah, it's <laughs> uh, like, that's the new Testament word for it. And I was like, yeah, like, that's why I'm having you do this. And like uh, so many light bulbs went off for him because he realized, wait a second, this is what has shaped the, the theology, the vocabulary of the early Christians, because they're, they're, borrowing all that from Psalm 2, Psalm 110, whatever. And so those are the kind of neat things that can start to pop out at you when you spend a lot of time reading the Greek Old Testament. It can be really impactful. I had a demon class this summer, not a demon class, as I had to clarify with my kids, but a demon class. <laughs> and it was on Paul's use of the Old Testament, how to preach that. But it was interesting. We, we read as sort of morning devotions. We read Isaiah 52 and 53 in Greek, and they hadn't really done that before. And, and many of them were like moved by it because they were seeing words that they're familiar with in the Greek New Testament. But they're seeing it in Isaiah uh, in terms of sin kind of imputational like language, um, the suffering certain all kind of stuff. And for them, it was quite, quite meaningful. So there, there actually can be some edification that happens with it, even though it's quite a uh, technical field. So. That, that's awesome. And I think it's important when we're thinking about, and kind of going back to the point you made earlier, that when we're looking at our Old Testament text, we are receiving um, this kind of large tradition and, we don't want to be uh, ignorant of the other witnesses, you know, as they're called, the ancient witnesses that we have to the Old Testament. And we need to be reminded, I mean, I, I did my degree in Semitic language and literature, and we were always reading the Septuagint right next to the Old Testament or Greek versions right next to the Old Testament as we were going through texts, because we recognize that, you know, this is in some ways is it's this is one of the many ancient witnesses that we have to the text and it's wrong to say well i'm just looking at this one medieval manuscript from 10th century ad and not to be mindful of what do the other witnesses say and that's that's the kind of 
belief we have in our scriptures that we're we're okay, we're okay with looking at variants. We're okay looking with looking at witnesses. And as you said, we need we need to be able to talk about it. Not to mention the fact that this is what New Testament writers are citing in saying, "Thus, thus saith the Lord," and <laughs> they cite the yeah. Greek translation. Yeah. You know, which I remind our students, kind of like you learned how Greek, how the Septuagint was a thing before you learned how it wasn't. You know, our students come to a seminary and I think they learn how to they, they wait, learn. Oh, wait a minute. It's the original manuscripts. That is the word of the Lord. And that's true. Right. And yet you can still stand up with your English Bible and say, thus saith the Lord, like we do every right. Sunday from the pulpit. And that's because the Apostle Paul did that. He did that right. with his Greek translation. And, uh, In fact, on that point, the, the last chapter of the Crossway book, so not the reader's edition, uh, is specifically devoted to that whole question, specifically hmm. to what degree does a modern, you know, non-Orthodox, because they use the Septuagint, yeah. what degree should a uh, Protestant Christian uh, ascribe any authority to the Greek Old Testament tradition? Uh, which is a big debate in scholarship and has been a debate within the church at, at least at certain points. Um, and that, that idea was precisely more or less where we landed, that uh, the normative place where we find, thus saith the Lord, fundamentally, for the Old Testament is in the Hebrew, as best we can reconstruct it. Mm -hmm. uh, but we can still treat the Greek Old Testament, so far as it is faithfully translated, as, using modern terminology, equivalent to like an English translation, a Spanish translation, a French translation, and say, this is still the word of God. It, it's not... We're not going to decide doctrine based on it uh, because it's not the same thing as the normative Hebrew, but uh, it still was for them their, you know, NIV. Uh, so that, you know, we'll see how what the feedback is on that point. But uh, that was, in many respects, one of the big uh, final arguments that we made that I think makes this really relevant for uh, lay people. Because you do have to fundamentally ask the question, you know, if Paul... There's a great passage in Acts where uh, it's Luke saying that the Holy Spirit said by the mouth of David in the Psalms, and then he quotes the Greek version of the Psalm, not the Hebrew version. So that, I mean, it's quite significant, the implications of that. Uh, yeah, so. I, I'm intrigued by that. Uh, Will, I'd love, you know, your linguistic perspective to get, to get some thought on that, too, because on the one hand, we want to affirm the adequacy of translation. I mean, there seems like this biblical need to affirm that since Paul and, uh, and the New Testament apostles assume that you can bring the very word of God into multiple languages, that that's not a hindrance to God's word going forth. And yet at the same time, in fact, time, in fact it's essential when you think about it. It's essential yeah. to the word of God going forward because they're not going around telling everyone you got to convert and learn Hebrew. Right. 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 And 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 the gospel, especially in the new covenant, is a gospel for every tribe, tongue, language, nation. You know, it's, so there's this necessity there. On the other hand, the linguistic side of uh, the amateur linguistic side of me uh, wants to say, yeah, but there's no perfect equivalence. Right. between a phrase in one language and a phrase in another language. So right. you know, how do we balance that tension yeah. while at the same time kind of keeping our focus on preaching the, the very word of God? Yeah, yeah, it's very, I mean, this is a huge question in Septuagint studies itself is trying to figure out how the translations of each book were made, right? And even debate over the method you should use to figure out how the translations were made. And trying to account for the characteristics, you know, you have this sort of typical spectrum between more literal and more free, uh, and it's really a lot more complicated than that. 
but part of the reason it's more complicated is because there is variety in how you can say more or less the same thing, right? And so when it comes to New Testament's authors, I think if you could ask most of them, uh, probably all of them, you, you know, you lay out a bunch of manuscripts, you got some in Hebrew, some in Greek, um, and you say to them, is this scripture, right? And I think, assuming it is, they would say, well, yes, but they would also have opinions as to which which is a better translation, which is a, a better copy. You know, this uh, I know this this manuscript is a better preserved text, or I like this translation version itself. You've got you've got this kind of debate going on within Judaism as well. That's part of the reason that you have these revisions taking place over the course of centuries leading up to uh, the early Christian era. Is that you have an old Greek translation that's made. And then somebody comes along and says, I think I'd rather have a version that's a little bit more like this flavor of language or translation, or I need a version that's going to serve this kind of need in my religious community, or I'd rather revise this version against some other Hebrew text that I think is superior for some reason. We don't always know how to, how to understand all those motivations or fit them together. But from a theological perspective, I think we need to bear in mind that these kinds of considerations are not beyond the New Testament authors, right? They're, they're taking these sorts of things into account. Uh, they understand it's a multilingual context. They certainly know translation, even if it's, it's more or less on an instinctive level. They do uh, translation they, for us. They do uh, translation for us, which, right? You know, that word in Aramaic means this. I mean, Matthew, yeah. Mark, they translate for us. So there is this impulse, like the translation is fine. They're translating the words of Jesus into different languages. Exactly. Yeah, so so I think it's it's easy to approach things uh, simplistically in, in the sense it's like, oh, well, did they quote the text or not? Uh, when there's a lot of other layers uh, and factors involved, and all of them, I think, are very much on the radar of New Testament authors themselves. And so one of the things uh, in the sort of New Testament chapter is we try to walk through some of that, obviously, in a way that's intelligible to lay people who are saying, Looking up, you know, a quotation in Romans 9 and going to find it in Genesis or wherever isn't just a matter of let me go and find it from the, you know, the English translation of the Hebrew and compare it. That's a good step. If a lay person does that, I'm super happy with that. <laughs> most don't. But what they may find is that it doesn't quite match. You know, it could be spliced together. It could be different sentence order, verb tenses change and that kind of thing. And there's actually more moving parts. And so we kind of walk through what are some reasons for that and, and are trying to at least give some people, give people some categories as to how to sort that out mentally without some, sort of falling off the ledge of I can't trust my Bible. You know, Paul yeah. changed the Bible. You know, that's not the right answer. Um, there's better answers. So. And that's and that's the really tender that that tender moment between realizing the Bible did not descend out of heaven in its present form, like Joseph Smith's golden discs, okay. <laughs> or the Quran. But a lot of lay people, I think, have that idea. Um, oh yeah, oh yeah, implicitly. Yeah, and and well-meaning, I hope well-meaning apologists have reinforced it for them, you know. And then learning, well, it's not like that, but bear with me just because it's not exactly what you thought it was. Don't be surprised when you learn what it really is. You yeah. know, you can, you can just, and just because we don't have answers to every question doesn't mean there's not an answer. Yeah. You and know? that, that goes for even very basic uh, historical facts about the text. Like every, 
every semester, I'm sure Scott's the same for you, Hebrew 1 students, when they hear that there were no vowels on the Hebrew text, right, the original text, and that the, you know, ancient copies were written in Paleo-Hebrew, like the minds just explode, just the sort of basic facts about Hebrew as a language and the history of Hebrew, the history of language, the history of writing. People uh, don't know this, right? And I mean, who can blame them? It's not sort of common knowledge, but giving yeah. some some of these basic tools to say, listen, this is how things had to happen just by simple fact of the technology that was available. Um, I think that can be really helpful. Yeah, yeah. And, and showing them, you guys point out, showing them the options. You know, we talk about this in prophets a good bit. I, I, the, the case study that I use is Jeremiah, Jeremiah in Greek and Jeremiah in Hebrew. Yeah. And it's shorter in Greek and it's got a different order. And so we just kind of walk through what are some of the options? Like we don't, we don't have, we don't know exactly. We're not going to know what exactly what happened. It was going to videotape, you know, of what happened, but we can walk through some of the options that are available to us, you know? And like you said, I mean, Greg, I think you used the language to help them get their minds around it. Yeah. And in the end, I think we also have a theology that can account for that view of the word of God, because we don't have a God that is uninvolved in historical process. We have a God who has been involved in the messiness of history from the beginning. And that is no less the case in how we've received word from him through through ordinary human individuals inspired by the Holy Spirit so that we have the very word of God and yet the very good word of God through historical process. So if theology is big enough to, to handle that, um, but it takes some time to kind of provide that and then and then work comfortably within it from a historical, lexical, linguistic perspective. I think the challenge we're constantly battling with, I think we say this at the beginning, that it's kind of a fool's errand to try to write a book on the Septuagint and keep it short. Um, and <laughs> even then it was longer than we than I was hoping it would be. Uh, but the challenge with this particular topic or the challenge with New Testament textual criticism or what have you, is that to do it right and to do it faithfully requires a lot of work because it's super complicated. And uh, trying to do that in a way that can maintain people's attention to try to keep driving for the so what, like that's a real challenge. Um, yeah. But that's what we're hoping that because we we ultimately want your educated layperson, your seminary student, your your pastor who's trying to get refreshed on this. We want them to have credible answers. When someone asks them, oh, what does the Septuagint thing mean in Genesis 4? But it's a long conversation because there's so many moving parts and, um, you know, we're not necessarily in an age where nuance is, uh, is value, but that's really what it takes to, to have a robust doctrine of scripture as opposed to kind of a hot take that's easily, uh, you know, easily sort of undercut uh, or just sort of a, a naive, overly simplified view that you just grew up with and didn't know, didn't know any better. And your pastor may not have known any better either. So trying to at least give some better, um, some better foundations uh, for that so that people don't kind of jettison their doctrine of scripture when they run into this thing called the Dead Sea Scrolls or this thing called the Septuagint. So trying to help protect against naivety and on one side and on the other, a kind of nihilism or hopelessness about the text. That's an important endeavor. Um, everybody go out and pick up the Septuagint, what it is and why it matters being published this year by Crossway authored by Greg Lanier and Will Ross. Thank you, brother, so much for being with us. It's been a great conversation. Yes. Yeah, happy to be here. And until next week, take care, everyone.
Well, you all know, you all know, you know, Tommy, have you met Tommy? Both of yeah. you? It's been a okay. while, but yeah. Tommy is the reason why I'm here. Wow. You remember what I took Great your job. class? I took ABX. You, with took you. My, I drove, you took my class. That's right. And I uh, drove. And we had just had our first baby. I got approval from Kruger to take ABX off campus, which I had to dial. I had to cash a lot of capital for that. Uh, I drove through the night. I slept in the parking lot of your old DC campus. <laughs> the whole first day, I was like greasy from not sleeping and sleeping <laughs> in my car. And uh, yeah. You inspired me. Wow. Well, why, the paper why I wrote for your class was the paper I submitted for all of my PhD applications. Yeah, I, I knew I knew that that you kind of built out from that from that paper. I never did get to see your the I, I never did get to read the final PhD product, but I suppose I can get that. Yeah, well, the final PhD had nothing to do with that paper, actually, because I changed <laughs> topics after my first meeting with Simon. But you're still a key part of that chain. Okay. All right. <laughs> I, re I remember, I, I remember your, uh, you wanting to, uh, to write the paper on first Peter. And I remember the thing that sticks out to me was I, I disagreed with one of your conclusions and told you that. And you were like, yeah, I'm going to do it anyway. And I was like, yeah, Greg is like, it was like, it's very, it was like, it was like an A, it was like an A plus paper. And I had to, I had to retract my, <laughs> my disagreement. So there you go. I have, it, I have it somewhere. I'm sure. Anyway. So yes, that the answer to your question, Scott, I know, Tommy. Okay. <laughs>